This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that sits on the intersection of finance and energy markets. This is Hill Vaden here, as always, with Brian Doherty. How are you, Brian? I'm good. Uh, happy 2021. Yes. This is our first, uh, our first official conversation of 2021. Of course, you know I've said many times, Hill and I have many <laughs> conversations daily. So um, there's definitely been some non-official conversations or unofficial conversations. But yeah. Yeah. You feeling and, you feeling good to to be back? Uh, I guess you know works. Last week was always a little bit of a lighter, right? Because everybody's coming back. But now I guess everything's in full swing. Everything's in full swing. It hit middle of week last week. Like it was kind of unsettling how Monday and Tuesday things were somewhat slow, but, but then all of a sudden things all caught up in the middle of the week, and now it is back to normal. <laughs> so, same for you. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, the, the Monday Tuesday was quiet, which was nice. Um, so we could all kind of get back on top of some emails and stuff. But I, w- I will say things. I feel like everybody's up and running this morning for sure. It's been a whirlwind. It makes the morning go by fast, though. So I'll take it. Yeah. And it has been a uh, start to the year, and maybe that's a, uh, you know, we, we try to start on something current event, something topical. Um, and we, we, we noticed yesterday what was the fifth anniversary of the death of David Bowie. Um, and, and there was an opinion piece in the New York Times that in those past five years, th- things have gotten rather crazy. What once David Bowie left the world? Do you, do you I guess, before we get into to some of this, do you, do you have a favorite David Bowie period or favorite David Bowie album or memory? So I really, so it's Last Dance, Let's Dance. But um, it's interesting because, you know, I always liked Bowie, but it was, I mean, I, I guess maybe now it's been eight years uh, since this happened, but so I live in New York, and um, about eight years ago, one of my good, there's, it, I think it's the Red Bull Music series or something like that that happens every year or happened every year. And one of my friends says, I've got an extra ticket. They were only 30 bucks um, at the new museum. And Niall Rogers, who is the producer on Let's Dance, is going to do an intimate sort of discussion around Let's Dance. And, um, and there's, only, I think, only about 45 to 50 people, I guess, were in this. So go up to the new museum, and it's sort of on the top floor where there's this balcony, and the sun was setting, and it's all white in there. And then now Roger sat up on the front with his guitar, and he was being interviewed. And then they had this fantastic sound system. So he gave a discussion and went through sort of how he got brought in by Bowie. And it wasn't really what seemed to be a natural fit for now Rogers and how he was approached at the table in a restaurant by Bowie and all these sort of things. And and talked about the making of Let's Dance and, and even... Wow. The specifics of Bowie having just gotten sober and obviously the other people maybe not being sober and some of the dynamics that happened in the in the creation of it. It was one of the best things I have ever attended. It was so cool. Now Rogers was so like, open book about it. And every now and then he would just start playing parts of um, the different songs on his guitar as he sat up there. And as what was remarkable about it is as he was giving the interview and, and having the discussions, you could see him getting excited as he started remembering things again <laughs> that you know, you didn't necessarily think of at the time. And then what they did is we listened to it. I think it was his copy. It might have been his copy of the original vinyl, both sides 
just, we all sat there in silence and he sat at the back and every now and then you'd hear laughter come out of him or something. And then he'd tell a story, you know, tell a story about why it's so funny that this was that or however, however it turned out to be. So I, it, it, even though, you, you, you know, you loved the album to begin with, but there's something, it created a real soft spot in me for that particular yeah. album and just for the experience. Cause you don't, you don't often hear the, the behind the scenes of an album like that, how iconic it was and how it was created. And now Rogers is, um, I didn't necessarily know or appreciate how his personality and he grew up on the Lower East Side of New York. So he even talked about, you know, different aspects of the, of the scene at the time and everything in New York. It was phenomenal. Best thing I've ever done for 30 bucks. Wow. Well, I, I, but by coincidence, so, so our guest today, Sam Wilkinson, who, who is a research director, what welcome, Sam, research director, uh, overseeing a lot of the clean tech research for IHS. Hey, Hill. Um, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Doing good. Pretty good. Well, so, so, so by coincidence, we, we just realized before this call began that, that one of your, I guess, identifications with David Bowie is through Stevie Ray Vaughan, who was the guitarist on the Let's Dance album. Or much of the tracks on Let's Dance, right? Yeah, that's what I understand. Honestly, I'm not a big David Bowie fan, and I don't know a lot about him. Uh, you know, I know what the the basics and what everyone knows, but uh, I just clearly remember the story of perhaps one of those not very sober people uh, involved in the process <laughs> of creating Let's Dance was uh, was Stevie Ray Vaughan, who was a big influence when I spent a lot more of my time playing music than I did talking on uh, renewable energy podcasts. And um, yeah, so he, I mean, he got famous and then he made a complete uh, pain out of himself by refusing to uh, participate in the, uh, he, he basically was asked to go on tour, but he refused to do it uh, to go with David Bowens or else he could take his own band and, uh, and you know, eventually made a name for himself through his determination to, to kind of not follow the, the path that was laid out for him by the David Bowie tour management. Uh, and that was, I think, where one of the big sort of springboards for his personal success. Uh, but yeah, that's that far more of my, that, that's pretty much all of my David Bowie knowledge, exhausted, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But it's an, it, that's actually a nice niche little uh, sidebar. I like it. Yeah. Well, so so the, the, the way we were going to um, kind of talk. Wait, Hill, what's your favorite? So I, I think I, I would say my favorite is Diamond Dust. And that's because. Um, my well, a couple of reasons, but but one, when my daughter was born, the nurse in the delivery room was playing Pandora on his phone, and Rebel Rebel was the first song that, that she ever heard, and and the song <laughs> that, that she was delivered to. Um, it does she listen to? It? She, she loves listen? it. Yeah, and she's okay. memorized. You know the future legend, the opening about you know, fleas eating rats the size of cats and cats eating rats the size of dogs. And she's memorized all of that. And, and where I guess that ties into some of the energy is, you know, that this, this um, David Bowie, you know, made these dystopian futures in, in a lot of his albums and Diamond Dogs is probably best at that. And since his death five years ago, we're in, you know, somewhat of a dystopian world where, where none of us can leave the house without masks on. Uh, a lot of us are communicating through digital channels exclusively. We've got people storming streets and rioting, and it's kind of a, a crazy world. And renewable energy is all but mainstream. And a lot of these, uh, you know, I read a sci-fi book with my son this summer where all the power came from the moon, solar panels on the moon. So, uh, as a slight of a segue here, Sam, you know, how, how in this 
almost dystopian future that, that is today our present, is renewables mainstream? And are we at a place of maturity within renewable energy? Relative maturity, I would say. I would say absolutely we are. Renewables has become mainstream. And the way that I would measure that in a very kind of everyday like way that most people can relate to is that my children, if we're driving along, they see a solar panel, they know what a solar panel is. They see a wind turbine, they know what a wind turbine is. If we drive past a coal-fired power plant uh, or a, you know, a gas uh, turbine, it's it's in, it's nothing to them. It, it means nothing. Uh, you know, my children who are four and seven already talk to me about the idea of cars running on electricity. You know, they can see cars plugged into the you know outside people's houses and things. And and so in people's minds, I feel like it's already mainstream. Like probably solar and wind more than electric vehicles, but. It already is. And the truth is that in most cases, solar and wind power, depending on where you are in the world uh, and how you measure it, is already one of the most economical forms of, of new build electricity. It's it's not universally true that it's cheaper to build a new solar farm than it is to run an existing thermal power plant, for example. But the economics for new build power generation are increasingly competitive for the two principal forms of uh, renewables, both solar and wind. So yeah, I think mainstream, we're surrounded by it. You you pretty much can't go anywhere that's uh, inhabited without seeing solar and wind power generation. It's everywhere. But on the other hand, you know, when you look at the pure economics, which is what the world and makes the energy world go around. Yeah, it's, it's you know, an increasingly compelling, increasingly attractive uh, solution. Can we talk about the competitiveness? So costs have come down tremendously, right? In the last probably five years, how much, I guess, two questions here. How much more cost reduction do we think there is in the next five-year period, for instance? And then, so now it's economic, it doesn't need policy support, or it still requires sort of a tax incentive side to it as well, or standalone, is it is it competitive? We'll tackle that kind of one thing at a time. Uh, so the first question about cost reduction and, and continued cost reduction, what's possible in the future? I, I always think about it, and it's, it's sort of a solar is unique in comparison to other energy generation in that it's infinitely scalable. Like you take one solar panel and you make a million of them. You make a hundred million of them. I couldn't tell you what the actual number is now. I think it's something like half a billion solar panels around the world. But it's a very like high pace automated electronics manufacturing process, right? You've got these machines that, okay, you take the polysilicon, you turn it into a, a ingot, you slice it into a wafer, you make a cell, uh, and then you package those cells into a model module or what a lot of people call a panel. It's highly automated very fast electronics process, huge, huge, massive factories being built. You know, it's the same as uh, a lot of other electronics products that you've been able to drive down the price of over the years. And you can put five of these panels on your roof, uh, or you can put hundreds of thousands of them in the desert, right? Like, And because of this massive scalability, this high volume manufacturing, we've seen a cost curve for the pure capex side of things that no other technology really, if you think across the whole power generation spectrum, has ever been able to achieve because of that totally different like manufacturing process. 
And then add on to that some of the increased performances, uh, increased efficiencies, et cetera, that also helps drive down the overall cost of the energy it produces. We can talk a bit more about that later on. But um, on the other piece that you, you mentioned about whether subsidies are required now that it's increasingly competitive, uh, I mean, subsidies are required to keep the market going at the massive volumes that we're seeing today, but they're not all they're not required everywhere there is increasingly large amounts of renewables being built just because they are one of the lowest cost forms of power of course the inherent problem with solar and wind is that you only get solar power when the sun's shining and you only get wind power when the wind's blowing uh, and that's why the the energy storage and typically batteries piece comes in as well to create what we would call a dispatchable power plant so you can you, you sort of match supply of power and demand a little bit more closely. But yeah, it, we will continue to see incentives and incentives will help to con- the industry to continue growing. Uh, and with the industry continuing to grow, we can drive down costs further. But it's not required everywhere anymore. And that's an important step. Is the, is most of the cost decline, is that in the system? Or are we looking at improvements kind of on the margins? Um, or are you still expecting kind of step change in cost from solar, cost improvements? So the cost, I talked a lot about the cost of the module, the panel, um, and that has come down dramatically. But the other hardware has all come down as well. You have what's called an inverter. A lot of people aren't sort of familiar with all the different pieces of a solar system if you like we have the module which produces dc electricity uh, and obviously what we have in our grids all around the world is ac electricity so you have what's called an inverter and the inverter uh, takes the dc power turns it into ac power and interfaces with the grid and injects the power into the grid increasingly that's also where a lot of the intelligence happens happening as well the monitoring uh, all of the intelligent functionality that's required to to keep the grid stable with high levels of renewable penetration. Uh, and they those two items in particular, the cost have fallen uh, significantly in recent years, and, and we see continued cost reduction in the future. Um, so that's the kind of the CapEx side of things. Then you get other technologies that are helping to just improve the output. Obviously, you know when you build your solar system, that's going to produce electricity for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on the lifetime of the system. And what you care about is how much power it generates. And that's what determines essentially what you would call the LCOE, the levelized cost of electricity. And that's what uh, people, then you're talking in dollars per kilowatt hour, dollars per megawatt hour, which is what people that buy and sell electricity care about, right? So there are some technologies um, like, solar trackers, for example, which have come become pretty much mainstream in large-scale ground-mount solar farms, uh, which is a, a device that you add to the system that basically means that the solar panel is kind of moving throughout the day to keep it facing towards the sun, rather than obviously when the sun first comes up in the day, it's hitting the, the panels in a fixed, call it fixed tilt system, the very narrow angle, so you get a very low amount of power produced. So that, you know, the truth is if you buy a tracker or and you install a system with a tracker, um, then you are going to pay more up front. But generally speaking, as long as you're in a region with reasonable solar conditions, you're going to get so much more electricity produced that the overall economics of the system, when you look at it in like dollars per megawatt hour or kilowatt hour, is actually improved. 
Uh, and it's the same with some of the module technologies that you see today, uh, things like bifacial, which is like a, one of those beautifully simple ideas that you basically, you know, on a traditional uh, older solar panel, you would have, a, you know, basically a back on it that means that the light can't get through. Um, but by basically making your solar cell so it has two sides to it and putting a transparent back on, any of the light hitting the ground is reflecting up and hitting the underside of the panels and, and you're harvesting extra power basically. You know, people say 20, 30% extra power from this technology. It costs a little bit more, but it's worth that extra capex to get the increased performance of the system over the lifetime. So there's a lot of things being done, but overall obviously the goal and, and what people measure, what people care about is the cost of the electricity produced, which is obviously achieved either by improving the output or by driving down the capex. And you mentioned reagents, right? And, and making sure that there are adequate solar conditions. I'm, I'm sure that's obviously an important aspect of solar energy. When we think about where we've seen the greatest growth thus far and where we actually see from a regional perspective, the greatest growth potential, are there are there regions that sort of rise to the top that are our low-lying fruit, we think, for for expansion of solar rapidly versus other regions that are maybe going to struggle? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the biggest regions for solar development in terms of megawatts built today are China and the US and certain parts of Europe. Uh, that is where a huge amount of the market lies today. Uh, and obviously in China, you, you the plants tend to be built in the west of the of the country where you have more sunshine. Uh, and in the US, a huge amount of the market is in California and the southwest where, again, that's where the solar conditions are perfect. So you get better economics. Um, but there's equally, I mean, I mean, let's get it out there. There's plenty of solar built in the UK and we're not famous for the sunshine, right? Um and actually, there's a bit of a like misconception. It's a very common misconception that yes, of course, bright sunshine is uh, you know great, perfect conditions, but actually, heat isn't great for a lot of solar technology. It can degrade the panels and it can decrease the efficiency. So there's a lot of um, technology that is favours kind of cool climate but sunny conditions. So. I don't feel like I've really answered your question that directly, but it, there's solar being built all around the world, and it's not just in the particularly like hot, like their places with very, very high levels of solar irradiation. And is the investment kind of on that, that last point? Is a lot of investment going into making solar in less ideal environments? Is that a focus of investment? Or I know we've talked before about kind of solar and battery as almost an integrated organism. Um, is that more of the kind of the, the flavor of investment dollars right now, trying to look at both storing the electricity from solar at the same time as generating the electricity from solar? Well, I guess another unique thing about solar, uh, which, you know, I said earlier about how scalable it is. Like you can put a couple of panels on a roof, you can put a thousand panels on a factory roof. You can. That's uh, that for me is where some of the most interesting like investment um, dollars are going because it's another unique thing is that I can put solar on my roof. You guys can put solar on your roof. You can put solar on on a business in an office in a factory, uh, and it's what we call behind the meter generation. So that power is being generated on your rooftop and consumed 
in your business, in your home and lowering your energy bills, right? That's totally different business and a totally different business case to putting it on out big ground mount facilities that are purely for generating power that's pumped straight into the grid. Uh, And that's where batteries also come into play um, because in many places around the world, it's now cheaper to buy a solar panel and put it on your roof and generate electricity than it is to just draw it straight out of the grid from your utility. Uh, And that, I mean, that's been the case in some countries for actually quite a long time. And it sort of flips the case. And in the past, you used to put those solar panels there because when you exported it to the grid, you got paid uh, and you got paid good money for it. But now the situation is that you don't want now, if I build a system, I don't want to sell the power to the utility because they're going to pay me less money than I actually pay for my electricity. You know, so you can think about it. Germany is one of the extreme cases. It's not entirely accurate, but you could argue, like take a ballpark figure that it costs you about 10 euro cents per kilowatt hour for the electricity that comes from your solar panels. Uh, and you sell it to the, to the utility a, a few cents more than that. But then later in the day, when you need that electricity, you're going to buy back the same electrons effectively at something like 35 euro cents per kilowatt hour. These aren't like accurate numbers, but that kind of ballpark. So three times more you're going to pay to buy the electricity than you just sold it to the utility for. So now you're thinking, well, I don't want to sell my electricity. I want to keep it and save that 35 that I'm going to have to buy it for later on. So that's where why people are increasingly adding batteries to their systems in in their home. Uh, so it's all about storing the energy and using it later. And it's what you call, people call in, increasing their self-consumption. Uh, and that's in the residential sector. Sorry. So this is actually something I had. So these, the battery, the connection with battery, we're talking on individual residential cases as well as utility-sized batteries. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'd only thought of utility. This is, yeah. Utility is a totally different use case. There's a lot of different things on the, we call it front of the meter or utility scale side of things that batteries can do. One of the things it does is just you pair it with solar uh, and you can then be a little bit more flexible with when you deliver your power to the utility. Uh, And sometimes you can obviously sell it at more valuable times of the day. Uh, if you think of, uh, you know, imagine a really extreme case where there's so much solar built um, that there's an oversupply of electricity in the middle of the daytime, unless you've got a guaranteed price. If you were to be selling on the wholesale market, you'd have a real tough time selling at a profitable price because there's you know, an oversupply essentially. So you could store that power and sell it later in the day when the price is more favorable. Or what it means is that the batteries are being added to, well, totally separate to the renewable energy generation, batteries are being used to do things like frequency regulation or provide capacity services and other like uh, ancillary services. Uh, And in many cases, they are a lower cost solution than, say, gas, which is commonly used for that type of thing. But what we're seeing is actually hybrids. So people will build solar and batteries. Uh, And those batteries will do a lot of different things. Sometimes they'll be like basically adjusting the output of the solar plant. Uh, Sometimes they'll be participating in ancillary services markets and frequency regulation markets, or they'll have contracts to provide capacity. Uh, So they're doing multiple different things. And they're a very, very flexible, very versatile asset, which is why you're increasingly seeing them being built in certain parts of the world. Have you... Sorry, just real quick. Have, have 
What's the general kind of split between behind the meter and in front of the meter um, in terms of, I guess, development? In terms of market size, like megawatt hours installed around the world today, it's roughly equal, I would say, but the front of the meter market is accelerating much quicker just because of the sheer scale of some of these projects. That feels very disruptive to the historical utility business, almost an Airbnb type model that, that Airbnb did to hotels, what solar could do to utilities. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, I mean, solar is, solar is is a disruptor because it, well, it disrupts the system because of its inter, what we call intermittency, like the, the fact that the, the power goes on and off and up and down. Uh, and that's why there is, I guess, an increased need for the flexibility which batteries can provide. I, I would put it like that. But yeah, the the front of the meter is a really interesting opportunity, and it, it is disruptive because batteries do have this versatility that that I mentioned earlier, and how they can kind of hop into different markets and do different things. So the batteries, um, can we just maybe we just talk a little bit about those? It, it, my understanding is we're still at a four hour battery. Is that is that right, or we sort of expanded that? And the other thing, I guess, is who's making these batteries? Is it the same one that's doing the utility size battery that it's doing the residential size batteries? Is it like, what's that battery market looking like? So let's tackle that one thing at a time. Let's talk about the who's making it first. The lithium ion batteries that dominate the the, bat, the grid energy storage sector, they are majority of them are made in China, it has to be said, uh, or by Asian manufacturers. Uh, and they are essentially majority of them are being made for the automotive market, for the electric vehicle market. So if you look at current situation, you're talking about like 80 to 90% of lithium-ion batteries are already going into the electric vehicle market, and that's not set to change. You know, if you went back five years, probably half of lithium-ion batteries were going into consumer electronics. But the, the basically, the balance has shifted entirely toward uh, the automotive market, and that's where the scale comes from. So similarly to what I said about solar panels earlier, the, the cost reduction in batteries that has been enabled it has been purely because of this massive increase in volume, huge volumes. The, you know, the Gigafactory, as Elon Musk termed it, uh, you know, they popped up all over the world. There's, you know, factories, um, the scale of the factories that have been built in China to manufacture these things are um, it's hugely impressive. And that's what's really drive, driven down the cost. Uh, and that's what's enabled these batteries to become competitive in the grid storage space. So, yeah, you, you mentioned duration. So what happened was, that what, generally speaking, in the early markets, the ones that are just starting to install energy storage, it's about frequency regulation. You can do frequency regulation with a 30-minute battery, uh, essentially. Uh, and, um, and and that opened up the, the early opportunities in certain parts of the US, like the PJM network. We saw a lot of systems built in Korea. We saw quite a lot built in Germany specifically. That was kind of the early markets. But as the costs have come down, it's enabled you to build to, uh, to build systems with a lot more batteries attached. So you get that longer duration. And yeah, four hours is kind of the sweet spot now. And that's typically driven by the fact that that's the requirement to participate in most capacity markets. Um, so California was one of the first places where we started to see batteries actually having contracts for capacity. Uh, a lot of those are built now and, and doing just that. 
Uh, and, and increasingly, as we move to these high levels of renewables, we see lo- a need for longer duration systems. Who, uh, six hours isn't impossible now, like, and we, th- we think eight hours will, will happen as well. Uh, so that's the general trend is towards longer duration batteries. Longer duration batteries can do more. They can participate in a lot more different markets, provide a lot more different services. But the ability to do that is very much driven by the lower costs that are enabled by the, the volumes that are going being manufactured for the automotive market. When you look at both the battery space and the solar space, so, so you know we often hear about you know oil and gas and energy as its own kind of company. Is there a sun and battery company or are any of these kind of big names, Sonova, SunPower, some of the solar companies that, that we know by name, are they getting into batteries or are these two discrete fields for two discrete specimens? Uh, on the manufacturing side, you don't really see any of the like classic renewable companies getting directly involved. Some power you, you mentioned there, there is, is is a minor exception because well, is a, is an exception. It's nothing minor about it. Obviously, some power is uh, Total, uh, and Total also has an acquisition acquired a few years ago, a company called Saft, which is a French battery manufacturer. Otherwise. The batteries are pretty much all manufactured by Korean, Japanese, Chinese companies. It is true that we are starting to see a lot more battery capacity coming to Europe and to North America. Uh, it's viewed as a kind of a strategic concern to bring this manufacturing of such a critical component for the automotive, for the electric uh, mobility market, like within like domestic borders, basically. Uh, but Still, a lot of it has been built by the Asian manufacturers, uh, but just closer to the to the big future markets of Europe and North America. Uh, so we don't really see any of them directly participate in the manufacturing side. But it's almost difficult to find a renewable energy company that isn't diversifying into the deployment of battery energy storage and starting to offer products and systems and solutions that incorporate uh, batteries into them. And when we think of this kind of expands beyond the solar and battery, but from a competitive positioning, we're hearing a lot, for instance, about, so, you know, there's solar, for instance, versus wind, and then there's also the rise of hydrogen. It's becoming increasingly a hot topic in North America and Europe, obviously, as well. How how do we think solar, is solar well positioned for the long run in this? Is it a a five-year investable theme as well as a 30-year investable theme, or or how does it compare? Uh, Well... The way that I would pull all those things that you just said together, solar, wind, batteries, um, hydrogen, is that, you know, if you if you look at the bigger, the big problem here, like the underlying driver is to reduce the carbon footprint of, well, of the global economy, essentially. But you look at where the those emissions are coming from, and roughly speaking, it's kind of nearly a half of it is from power generation. Uh, and it's pretty obvious how we clean up power generation we switch to renewables and you if you're going to switch to renewables which is principally solar and wind uh, then you're going to need an increased amount of energy storage which largely comes from batteries uh, to keep things stable the truth is you've got the other like sectors um, industry like transport buildings for example uh, that a large part of that can't be easily decarbonized Electrifying things is is one route, and obviously you, for example, transport, you increasingly power it with electricity, and whilst you're cleaning up the power generation side of things, then you're moving like down the scale of carbon emissions. But a certain parts of it, it perhaps 
can't be easily electrified, like heat, um, you know, industrial processes, all these types of things. And that's where hydrogen really comes in. Obviously, hydrogen may also play a big role in transportation as well. And as you know, I've got many colleagues that, that could talk to you about that in more detail. But essentially, hydrogen is going to be required. There's no doubt about that. But it's all about how you create that hydrogen. Obviously, traditional methods today of creating hydrogen are, are not clean and green at all. Uh, and the goal is to shift towards green hydrogen production, which is producing hydrogen from water via electrolysis, but powering that with renewables. So you've got this like very complex future energy system that was starting to to arrive where in the past we had very like discrete very simplistic networks of gas power heat you know very independent from each other large production flowing through to end consumers in, in all cases and now everything's like this really complex interconnected web of, of these different networks uh, and the truth is that solar and wind will somehow compete but they will also complement each other in many cases. Uh, and in many cases, solar and wind will be built specifically to power green hydrogen production uh, that will be required to then decarbonize the, the heat, industrial processes, et cetera. Uh, so I see all of it playing a role. Uh, and I think you know, we're actually at a very early stage of the development of this. I don't really know the exact word to call it, this kind of highly interconnected, I guess, web of, uh, of energy. You know, we went from having a grid to a network. And I think the next thing we have is a web where things are become increasingly like complicated and increasingly connected to each other. Uh, and I guess sector coupling is kind of the buzzword at the, the center of all of that. And is scale the big competitive advantage in all of this? Or, or is there some piece of technology or access to sun or wind or something that is going to make one region or one company or one business model better than others? Um, I'm not sure. Scale, I've mentioned a couple of times, and it's it's a big thing for uh, for the solar and batteries just because they are that kind of unique high-volume manufacturing um, system. Uh, on hydrogen as well, you get massive benefits from scale on the electrolyzer side. So as you move to bigger electrolyzers, that's a big part of driving down the capex uh, of a system. But I think actually more and more it becomes about the business model and the implementation. Moving towards high value rather than high volume, it becomes important. And you know, batteries is a great example. Being intelligently managed to hop between different revenue streams to achieve the highest possible revenues it, it, it all becomes about intelligence versatility and intelligent management of, of the overall system and i think that's where some of the biggest opportunities lie i guess sort of on that then do we think that's so that's maybe the current biggest challenge is needing to solve that is that what you think is the biggest challenge to sort of proliferation of solar development over the next five years or battery development um, i think the biggest challenge overall is, is again about this integration of all of these technologies you know solar's proven to be low cost reliable bankable wind has proven to be low cost reliable bankable batteries have, have proven the same uh, i think for me it's more about the integration of all of these technologies into this single system of course driving down costs further through scale helps to open up new markets where it's borderline at the minute, whether it's competitive or not. Um, but I think for me, it's it's all about that integration and development of business models. 
And then since it is the inaugural podcast of 2021, we'll, we'll, do, a, we'll do a little bit of a prediction. In the next, uh, let's say, I won't say one year because, you know, a year time horizon is pretty tough. But in the next 24 months, let's say, what do you, what are you watching for? as far as development in, I, I won't even keep you committed to just solar or batteries. It, it could be across the, the renewable energy platform. Is there something that you're watching for as a signpost in the next 24 months, um, either as a positive or negative that we should all be, that we should all have on our radar? Yeah. So uh, one thing that I would say is in the solar industry specifically, we're looking for a return to growth. Like 2020 was a unique year because it was the first time since we've been tracking the industry that the market actually contracted on an annual basis, it was uh, which is a kind of momentous occasion. But obviously, it wasn't uh, a normal year, and there was many factors that, that drove that decline. Uh, and what we see is a very strong rebound now. But combined with that is there is a few challenges on the supply side that is impacting on pricing. Uh, so a lot of the raw materials that go into solar panels, for example, the prices are particularly high at the moment. So people are kind of waiting uh, and waiting to make investment decisions. Uh, and so we do see the possibility of, of supply crunches on the horizon because of this, you know, basically demand dropping off and the supply chain adjusting to that. And now we're going to see a big takeoff as the as the industry hits the ground running again in 2021 and 2022. And so I think that's the key thing is I will be watching very carefully of whether supply can stay aligned with demand and obviously some of the implications on price and investment uh, that any tightening between the two could bring. That's going to be what I'll be watching carefully. Well, excellent. That gives us something to to watch ourselves, which means that it'll just probably mean that you're going to be a revisit to our podcast, Sam. As, as, um, th th this is how we get you on the hook. It's like the, you know the quintessential. What is it that you're supposed to leave a bag or something somewhere so that you get invited back? Um, this is this is what I'm going to hold you to is that you've left your little crumb and I can come back and ask you to yeah. to return in order to impart some added wisdom to us as we sort of see how 2021 evolves as you, as you said now that kind of things can get up and running again or hopefully can get up and running again um, depending on how quick how quickly these economies can obviously get back to to work. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking to see if solar module prices start to fall again before I'm allowed out of the house. That's going to be my uh, the kind of the, the <laughs> two things that I'm. <laughs> your harbinger. It's <laughs> which one happens first. Well, thank you, Sam. This uh, this has been fantastic, illuminating, even if that's not too bad of a pun for for a solar podcast. It's, um, it's right, Hill. <laughs> So, so we do look forward to having you back, and we will we will let you go. And thanks for joining us on what is the the, the first recording of 2021. So, having me, guys. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.